Good evening. My name is Barry Harvey, and I'm a member of the faculty here at Baylor University. It is my distinct pleasure to welcome all of you to this, the culminating event in Baylor's year-long celebration of the 400th anniversary of Baptist. Tonight, we shall hear from one of America's preeminent church historians and public intellectuals. And tomorrow evening, a panel of distinguished Baptist scholars shall respond to what we all will hear in a few moments. Now, unlike many, many other Protestant groups, Baptists cannot look to a Martin Luther, John Calvin, or John Wesley to pinpoint our origins. And where you have two Baptists, you will hear at least three opinions on the subject, and almost others. That said, most agree that an event in early 1609 marked an important moment in the origins of the Baptist tradition. A small group of English separatists living in Holland to escape persecution in England, led at that point by John Smith, reconstituted itself around believers' baptism. Since that time, Baptists have grown from a small band of 440 to a worldwide communion of over 100 million members. The 17th century that gave birth to Baptists was a time of significant and far-reaching change. The grand medieval edifice was crumbling, and as it did, the ground under the institutions of church, state, commerce, and civic society shifted, often with dramatic and even violent effect. The magnificent structure that was to be the modern world was beginning to rise on the ruins of the previous centuries. Baptists have flourished in, within that world, exercising an important role within the larger Christian community and in the world as a whole. Now, as we all know, the world never stops changing, and the familiar institutions and functions that once dominated the modern landscape are not exempt from these changes. Now, it is, to be sure, virtually impossible for any of us to predict in detail what the future holds in store for all of us. A few years ago, I was asked to review a book containing the proceedings of a colloquium that was convened at the University of Edinburgh from August 31st to September 3rd, 2001, one week before the attacks on New York and Washington. The participants in the colloquium had been asked to examine the contributions and contested questions of public theology in the 20th century, and on that basis to determine which issues and approaches would be important in the 21st. When I received the book, I noted with the appropriate amount of irony that only one entry appears in the index for Islam and none for terrorism. Nevertheless, we can safely say that the 21st century holds many surprises for us, and Baptists, together with our sisters and brothers and other Christian traditions, as well as our non-Christian neighbors, both near and far, will have to learn anew how to work and worship in a global society that no longer bothers even to give lip service to the God of Abraham and Sarah. Before I call upon President Garland to come and introduce our featured speaker, I have two other duties to do tonight. Uh, first is a very pragmatic one. Uh, would you all now take out your cell phones and turn them off or quiet them? And a more uh, auspicious uh, honor that I have is to introduce you to the three members of the panel who will respond tomorrow evening to tonight's address. Uh, they are seated in the front row, and I, I would ask that they stand as I introduce them. The first is Dr. David Emanuel Goatley, who is the Executive Secretary-Treasurer of the Lot Carey Baptist Foreign Missions Convention 
uh, an international Christian mission agency founded in 1897 that helps churches extend their witnesses to the ends of the earth. And he is also the executive director of the Lock Carey International, a global relief and development agency that helps improve the quality of life in marginalized communities around the world. He is an ordained Baptist minister who has been a pastor, university professor, and seminary professor, and has earned degrees from the University of Louisville and earned his PhD degree from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He was elected in July 2006 as a member of the board of directors of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, and he also serves as a member of the board of directors for the Save Darfur Coalition, an advocacy community working for peace, security, and justice in Darfur and currently is president of the North American Baptist Fellowship, a regional body of more than 30 Baptist denominations and organizations affiliated with the Baptist World Alliance, with a membership of more than 20 million Baptists in Canada and North America, together with his wife and son, Dr. Goldley, who resides in Washington, D.C. Our second panelist is Dr. Nora Lozano, a native of Mexico, and she is an associate professor of theological studies at Baptist University of the Americas in San Antonio, Texas. She received her PhD at Drew University in Madison, New Jersey, her Master of Divinity at Eastern Baptist Theological Seminary, and her bachelor's degree at the Universidad Regional Montana in Monterrey, Mexico. Her academic interests are centered in the areas of systematic Hispanic, Latin American, and women's theology. Dr. Lozano is co-founder and director of Latina Leadership Institute which is devoted to the discovery, development, nurturance, and empowerment of women leaders from a Latina perspective to be transform transformational agents in church and community settings. The Institute provides educational and network opportunities for Latina women and offers a three-year certificate in Latina leadership studies. Dr. Lozano is also a member of the Theological Study and Reflection Group of the Baptist World Alliance and a member of the worldwide delegation of 10 Baptist theologians representing the BWA Study and Research Division that holds yearly theological conversations with the Catholic Church, specifically the Vatican's Pontifical Council for Promoting Christian Unity. Our third uh, speaker is Dr. Nigel Wright, who is principal of Spurgeon's College in London, having formerly served as president of the Baptist Union of Great Britain in 2002 and 2003. An ordained minister, he earned his initial degrees from the University of Leeds and London University and has research degrees from the University of Glasgow and King's College University of London. He is on his third tour of duty at the college, having studied there and taught Christian doctrine from 1987 to 1995. As you can tell when you talk to him, he's proud to be from northern England and has spent much of his ministry in pastorates and local churches there. He has traveled widely throughout the UK and the world preaching and lecturing. He serves on the Council of the Baptist Union in Great Britain and a moderator of its doctrine and worship community. Uh, he's a member of the Council of the Baptist World Alliance and was chair of its study commission in Christian ethics from 2000 to 2005. He also serves on the Council of the Evangelical Alliance and the board of the Moscow Theological Seminary. He and his wife reside in, in London and have two grown children. We were to have a fourth panelist Dr. Ed Gosted, Emeritus Professor of History at the University of California, Riverside, but unfortunately he suffered a fall a few weeks ago in his home and is unable to be with us, and we do send him our best. 
And now it is my pleasure to introduce to you Dr. David Garland, Interim President of Baylor University, who will introduce tonight's distinguished speaker. We've been celebrating our Baptist heritage for the last year, and it reminds me when Dr. Elton Trueblood, the distinguished Quaker theologian, came and spoke at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he said he was speaking somewhere, and someone came up to him and said, you know, we Baptists go back before Christ. Dr. Trubud was surprised by this and asked, how so? And he said, well, don't you know John the Baptist? Well, Dr. Trubud said, by that logic, you are far too modest. Baptists really go back to Abraham. It was a Baptist's turn to be surprised and say, how so? And Dr. Trueblood said, well, don't you remember when Abraham said to Lot, you go your way and I'll go mine? <laughs> Baptists. That may be why we've had to have a Lutheran come and talk about Baptists. Dr. Martin Marty is a minister of the Evangelical Lutheran Church, and therefore, as the name says, he is an evangelical. He is renowned as a scholar who has written extensively on the 19th century, 20th century, and now 21st century American religion. He received a Ph.D. from the University of Chicago in 1956, served as a Lutheran pastor from 1952 to 1962 in the suburbs of Chicago, and for 35 years, from, 1930, from 1963 to 1998, he taught at the University of Chicago Divinity School and now holds emeritus status as the Fairfax M. Cone Distinguished Service Professor. The Institute for the Advanced Study of Religion at the University of Chicago Divinity School was founded in 1979 as an institute for advanced research in all fields of study of religion, and it was renamed the Martin Marty Center in 1998 to honor its founding director and the extraordinary contribution that he has made as an author and commentator on religion and public life. He's well known as a columnist for the Christian Century Magazine since 1956. It is not a misprint in your program. He has authored over 5,000 articles, has written more than 50 books, and has been conferred with 75 honorary doctorates. He has served St. Olaf College in Northfield, Minnesota since 1988 as Regent Board Chair. You would think with all of these marvelous credentials that he would be intelligent, but he also served as interim president in late 2000. In 1983, he wrote an article in the Christian Century, Baptistification Takes Over, and he will now report on how things have gone since then and how things look for the next 400 years. Will you welcome Dr. Martin Marty? very much, dear friends, Baptists, other Baptists, and other than Baptists who care about Baptists. 
I'm honored to be here for the conclusion and culmination of this project, which has been made much simpler by the fact that last year was the 400th, and so we only have to look ahead 399 years <laughs> instead of 400. Uh, if you stand and sit where I sit and you look out of the Baptist world, it seems protean. There's so many different shapes, and it's really hard to find what shape. For example, uh, this week, on the one hand, we have a Baptist uh, saying things about Haiti that people don't like. Uh, we have a Baptist former president of the United States running many of the features of the rebuilding of it. I was at faculty retreat yesterday. They still allow me to come back. And uh, I'm always reminded there that my paycheck through all those years at the University of Chicago was Baptist Theological Union. The Northern Baptist Seminary, which <laughs> went lots way from it, <clears throat> always looked a little critically at it. And the word was out since it was Rockefeller Baptist money. There was a school that used Baptist money to pay atheist professors to teach Catholic philosophy to Jewish students. <laughs> so that's the kind of spectrum in the midst of which, in which I live. The key question, I think, before us in this final gathering of this campus's approach is what use shall we make of the discussion of these two days, including tomorrow night? I really look forward to hearing when I see three different nations represented. I would say, lo, a host is encamped against me. And uh, I do miss good friend Edwin Scott Gostad, fellow American religious historian who's taught me so much. The illusion would be that to talk about the future of the Baptist denomination, it's plural for me, is that we can predict. We can't predict 400 years or 400 days or 400 minutes. Last Tuesday morning, did any of you predict that uh, Haiti would have an earthquake? No one that I know in the world did, and yet it's one of the big events of our years. Who foresaw 9-11? The election of a Polish pope, that the son of a Kenyan would be president of the United States. We can discuss many things about it, but we can do nothing interesting about whatever is interesting in the detail of the future. And so those of us who are historians and know we have nothing to say till something's happened and left a trace tend to collect these little sayings that remind us of that. The theologian Woody Allen who said, we have seen the future and it is very much like the present, only longer. <laughs> and even that doesn't really work because picture people in Smith's Baptist Church in 169 and this long time between now and then, and what's recognizable between now and then. So the question with which I began was, what's the best use we can make of it? And whenever you use the word we, I think it's important to begin defining that. I often see magazines that says, why we are all into uh, Angelina Jolie this year, or why we are all on such and such diet, or why it really means an editor and five people she hangs out with do that. So I shouldn't assume that when I say what use can we make of it that we're all talking about the same thing. You invited me as an historian, and the historian uh, has to make a special kind of use of the concept of the future. The
British historian Michael Oakeshott has shown the various modes that are approaching knowledge. If you're a scientist, the differentia is measurement. How long is the uh, specimen on? How many people go to church? You're measuring, measuring, measuring. Uh, the uh, poet is the imagination. We don't have to have things have happened or whatever. But the historian has to stick to the past, and here I am accepting an invitation to the future, as I often do. Classical language is ignoratio elenchi. It's a category mistake to uh, pretend that history knows something about the future. Category mistake like good morning, he explained. Or Basil Fawlty's motor car, if you've seen his films, his car goes along and engine stops, and so he stops and opens the hood and gets a branch off a tree and starts beating it on the hood. That's a category mistake. And uh, historians are doing category mistakes when they do anything that isn't about the past. Religion, by the way, the category is the will, voluntatis. Um, you aren't really doing anything religious unless you have some concept of how you alter things for the future. Every sermon, every prayer, every song, every class, insofar as it is religious, deals that way. But for me, it's uh, the past. How you use it in my favorite way, if I can import something from my state all the way down here. Abraham Lincoln's House Divided Speech, June 16, 1858, to 1,000 Illinois Republicans. Beginning that speech, if we could first know where we are and whither we are tending, we might better judge what to do and how to do it. A very profound thing that he did, and that is the service that historians and sociologists and journalists uh, perform. You can't predict on the base of it, but if you can know where you are and whether you are attending, you might better judge what to do and how to do it. Because you amass certain resources. You check what talents are out there. You see what the new enemies and forces against you are, etc. In one sense, many of us who do this talk about fact that we take the past and the present and then we write alternative scenarios for the future. That's what um, people did in the stock market. We've all lost faith in that venture about a year and a half ago. But what they're really doing in the good old days, they would look at the history of a company and they would see what the prospects are and whether it's worth investing. That got out of hand somewhere along the way. So here we are taking Baptist visions and the Baptist embrace of the Christian faith, hope, and love, and connecting with praxis, with practical action and looking into the future. I'm highly sensitive to the fact that no one a little distance away from a tradition can rightly use the word we. You probably all know the usual squelch, the Lone Ranger and Tonto are surrounded by Native Americans in a familiar scene, and the Lone Ranger said, what are we gonna do with all these Indians? And Tonto said, what do you mean by we, pale face? What are we? Well, as fellow Christians, we are much involved with Baptists, a hundred million of the Christians around the world, and they are everywhere. In some of my work in preparing for this, I just ran through everything of the Baptist World Alliance and so on, and Baptists tend to be everywhere, and those who aren't deal with them. In the Soviet Union, there are very few Baptists, and yet they were often a voice against Stalin and Khrushchev. And in the new days, when the Russian Orthodox Church wants to run everything, they would be among the dissenting voices. 
that Edwin Scott Gostad identifies with the Baptist tradition. Well, so far, so good. That's how we're going to use the future, but we have another tough word in the assignment, the future of a denomination. And I put in the plural, the future of denominations, or the Baptist movement and the Baptist expression. Denomination, the yearbook this year says there are 39,000 identifiable catalog Christian denominations in the world, and no doubt thousands of them are Baptist. Back when there was a document called the Yellow Pages, nowadays we use the internet for that, but I always would come to a city and I'd always look at the Yellow Pages. There's a section there, uh, well, right before cigars, right after charcoal, called churches. And uh, I'd always count a city this size would probably have 50, 60 different denominations and 10 or 15 of them would be Baptist. And now we're going to talk about the future of the Baptist denomination, and we're talking about it as a whole, without focusing on a single part of it, but highly aware of all of them. That's the macro sense. The micro sense is when we want to get up close to them. I imagine most of you who read in these fields know that the concept of the denomination itself is in trouble. So talking about the future of a denomination could sound futile if we picture the denomination as a static, frozen form. Russell Ritchie, in a book on denominations, says the denomination as such is a relatively recent phenomenon invented about 400 years ago. And Winthrop Hudson, another historian in the Baptist tradition, really identifies the rise of the Baptist churches in England and then in the American colonies as being present at the creation of the denomination. As long as you had just an established church, or in the Catholic Middle Ages, if you were a dissenter, you would be like the Waldenses. You'd have to go hide up in the mountains somewhere. But now suddenly there's an era in which you have numbers of movements, the Quakers typical among them. But the Baptist is almost what sociologist Mark Weber would call an ideal type. Study the Baptist and you learn a lot about what students of the movements are talking about when they talk about denomination. Where are we and whither are we tending when we talk about the Baptist denomination or denominations. Is the denomination itself dying or dead? As I say, if, it's, if it is, it seems pointless to talk about the details or envision any kind of a future. Here's where I would say, as I listen to all the debates of it, again, where we are and whether we are tending, it looks to me through history that what the sociologists call there's a structural functional gap that's going to be filled by something. That is, if you have a local if you're Christian and it survives, and you are local, but you want to connect with something else, there'll be some other form. For a long time with Baptists, it was associations and consociations and so on. So that if the denomination as such would be in trouble and die, something would take its place. Now, it's true that you could move in the non-institutional direction. You know the mantra. I'm not a member of the organized church. I hate institutional religion. I'm not even sure I'm religious, but I'm very spiritual. I always picture kind of an aerosol spray can at that stage. I'm very spiritual. You can't grab it anywhere. And my former colleague, Winfred Solomon, always says uh, when people talk about spirituality in this religious sense, what they really do is they take religion and then they take out of it all the things they don't like, and what's left is spiritual. 
I could give a much more positive appraisal of spiritual. It's a profound term in the traditions, including the Christian. I tend to like spirituality if it has an adjective. There is Baptist spirituality. There's women's spirituality. There's medieval spirituality. But when you have spiritual spirituality, it's kind of gaseous, and it's your escape from ever, ever having to make a commitment to a body of people. But most people over the long pull say that a movement like the Christian spirit demands a housing. If believers are to transcend solipsism, the utter isolation of the individual, the making up of the sense of certain meanings entirely on your own, then you're going to have some such form. Uh, what interests me these days is to look at all of the non and un and post-denominational movements that um, have come out of the denominations. And what do they look like? To me, they look like denominations. In my neighborhood is the Willow Creek Fellowship, which uh, lists 12,000 local congregations that get some of their sustenance by their connection to it. The Saddleback Churches, uh, very much of that kind of thing. They, they link across the way. They have annual meetings. They have headquarters. They have newsletters, papers, websites, and blogs. Willow Creek has a statement of faith. It's a little longer than the Baptist Faith and Life Commissions that I see, a little more detailed, but it's um, a nascent kind of denomination along the way. I think the one smart thing they all do is something that Baylor alumnus and good friend of mine, Bill Moyers and I are always working on, is how to have happier denominations in the future. We have a very, very simple technique, and you could take it home to your part of whatever denomination you are and try it out. We think, I've covered many denominations for Christian centuries, it's always the same pattern. They usually start Sunday night, and everybody's so happy. You have the alumni of the seminaries and the colleges come, and people from the various places come. You sing gorgeous hymns and have a good sermon. Everybody loves everybody. And the next day, you see all the works of the church, and it's still real well. Tuesday, you get the committee reports. From there on, it's downhill. Then you uh, have open hearings, and you finally vote, and it's 51 to 49 or so, and you go back mad and mobilize for next year along the way. Moyers and I have it very simple. Denominations we like, we think of them as extended families, and you have to elect people, and you have to vote on a budget, but don't vote on anything else. That's where you always get in trouble. As soon as you want to settle the vote of doctrine and so on, uh, do it the way you do it in the family. You just hang in there long enough, and those that shouldn't be doing it get petered out along the way, and those that have a good idea, the family gathers around. Watch the next family reunion. Um, uh, Moyers always says of the family reunion, uh, it starts happy. Again, he's talking Marshall, Texas. I don't know if it's the same all over Texas or wherever you all come from, but you gather, you go to Baptist church, you hear a wonderful sermon, you sing beautifully, then you go out to the picnic grounds outside and you have a long Baptist prayer and, uh, and you're all gathered there and everybody loves everybody and about an hour later you notice that some kid has cracked somebody else's shins with a baseball bat and they're chasing each other and they're arguing over grandma's amethyst and they're discussing a will and so on. But the one thing you know is they'll all be back next year. They haven't settled things, but they're family. Well, I think that that's a way in which we can talk about the future of a movement like this. Somehow, whether we settle things or not, 
there are things that have been with the Baptists, I'd say from the beginning and 400 years later, still are to be wrestled with. And I've listed uh, eight or nine of these. Um, I intend to finish in 50 minutes and we have a little time, I think, for give and take and so I hope it'll happen there. And the four other speakers, I don't want to three other speakers, I don't want to call them respondents. I hope they're doing their own thing, but they have this outline and we can compare notes and see whether my we is theirs because they have more credentials for saying we. Number one, where we are and whither we are tending, I will often read people talking about the essence of the Baptist tradition. And many of the debates are over that. What's at the core of the core of the core, the essence of the tradition? I tend to follow the Spanish philosopher Jose Ortega Garcia, who says, the human doesn't have an essence, the human has a history. Creation, imperfection under God is a chapter, and the fall is a chapter, and what we do after the, is the chapter. But you haven't figured out an essence because of that. You can't pin it down, and I don't think you can do that with Baptists, who live with very little that's settled in the way that if you have a hierarchy, an infallible pope, an episcopacy, some way, a separate canon, a unified center, then you can maybe talk about essence. But I think we're talking about a history. Where we are and whither we are tending, it's not an agreed upon thing. What do we do and how do we do it? I've taught some courses with David Tracy, the Catholic uh, theologian, very learned, very difficult. The students say when Marty and Tracy teach together, first hour and a half Tracy talks, the second hour and a half Marty translates it into English. But he's taught me something about argument and conversation that I think we should leave, about how it's prosecuted in the future. In argument, it's determined by the answer. You have the answer and it's your job to convince the other, to defeat the other, to be converted by the other, but it starts with the answer. The conversation is guided by the question. How do we handle that text in our time and in this place? Certainly, the Baptist tradition has been a tradition of argument that goes right back to the beginning as implied here. And again and again, it comes up to anyone who keeps reading Baptist history. And my profession would be a lot poorer if it weren't for the Baptists who do so many interesting things every year that we keep having new materials. But they're almost always done in the form of the argument in which one side has it figured out along the way. 400 years from now, I suppose if I were predicting, I'd say Baptists will still be arguing whether inerrancy and infallibility are the best way of discussing biblical authority, but they will be conversing about biblical authority. They have nothing else to talk about if they don't. It's very important. That would be a sample of the ways in which you begin with a question. Doesn't mean that you can't have conviction, that you can't try to convert people or anything like that. But if you want to advance a movement, you do it by constantly asking questions, listening, and acting upon the partial resolutions. So where are you on essence? I have not found the essence of Baptisthood, and if one of you would like to propose it, we'll let the other 200 of you argue about it. But I'd like to converse. Number two, a clue to the historic centrality of the history of the Baptists 
chosen by itself and applied by others is, of course, in the name itself. That's always a pretty good clue. More happily, I think, for you than for us to be stuck with a name like Luther, however much we like it, he didn't want the evangelical church in Germany that followed his reform to be called Lutheran. His enemies did it, but we're stuck with it. And uh, some others have it kind of easy. Congregational gives you a clue. Presbyterian gives you a clue. Episcopal gives you a clue. But Baptist is the one that has a, an actual biblically substantive center. Don't tell the Presbyterians, I just moved the Presbyters off to the side or the bishops off to the side. But you really know what people are talking about when they talk about baptism. And believers' baptism by immersion has been the most visible mark of being a Baptist. There is some wavering on this, and in my reading and preparing for this, I saw many addresses by people who say that uh, numbers of baptisms have gone down in many of the sub-denominations and conventions, and that's a cause of concern. What plays less of a role in most of the arguments, and so on. Meanwhile, the rest of us are also uncertain about this. Those of us in the infant baptizing tradition of these years are having to do a lot of basic work on our assumptions. The new Evangelical Lutheran Worship book I noticed last week at a baptism at our church of an adult. I started reading and it says, now the candidate presents himself or herself for immersion or pouring. Well, I'm 81 years, I'll be 82 next month and I've been a Lutheran all my life and I've never seen a Lutheran immersion. Maybe there are such things, but we have that reminder there because our doctrine of baptism fits better with it. We're very much Romans 6 people who are buried with Christ by baptism into death, and every Lutheran is supposed to do what we do. In the morning, you make the sign of the cross as a reminiscence of your baptism. You're born again every day, and then Luther says, then you read this Bible, you say this prayer, you sing this hymn, and then you go forth to your work joyfully which my wife and I always work on <laughs> with a crick in the back or whatever it is, and at night you do the same and so on. It's much more vivid with the Baptist understanding of baptism, and uh, I hope they don't lose it, and I hope we get more of it, at least keeping it vivid. But where we are and whether we are tending, some loss in the understanding of that, not just in the right, R-I-T-E, but in the consequences. What does it mean to come forth from this with commitment, etc.? What is distinctive about the Anabaptist and the non-Pedo-Baptist baptisms? We used to play a game. If your denomination disappeared and you wanted to keep on being a Christian, had to settle for something, what would you do? I would say, I'd either be a Baptist, uh, Catholic or a Mennonite. They say, you can't do that. <laughs> Catholics and Mennonites are that far apart. I think both of them have something of a grasp of the Christian faith that I aspire to. I'm working, I use singular, I didn't say we, I aspire to. Um, and I think that uh, the Baptist contribution is a great contribution there in the meaning of an ethic that follows or should follow, understanding of uh, government and all the rest that comes. If there's anything to my observation, it suggests an urgent re-inquiry and more conversation in a different spirit. In my view, an approach to baptism did not give rise to the Baptist communities. Dr. Wright can correct me tomorrow. But it seems to me that in England and in New England, an understanding of conviction and commitment and the commitment of oneself to the demands 
of the law of God and the promise of the gospel. And in order to do that, you began to separate and the highly disciplined people, I would argue, backed into the understanding of believers' baptism. They didn't wake up one morning in my reading of baptist history and say, hmm, let's do something different than everybody else. Let's start um, baptizing only adults and immersing them. No, they said we want an integrity to our commitment that we don't get from the state churches where everybody's baptized and never thinks about it after the champagne has been poured and the little white dress is put away. We mean something different. And the best way to do that is to turn to the biblical way in which that's happened. It was so exceptional and unsettling. Nowadays, all the corporations are talking, you have to do branding. And I think Baptist branded the Baptists. It became central to the story and provided the name. 400 years from now, something you'd have to ask would have to take its place or you would be joining a very different part of the Christian tradition. Number three, first the branding and now the assumption I think that goes with it is what it is to be human and a believer which are corollaries of this other teaching as I read it in Baptist history. I attended a meeting at Notre Dame a few years ago. The church historians of the Midwest meet and uh, we were discussing most of them are Roman Catholic and many of them were Latino and Hispanic, Latina. And they were discussing the biggest change after the Second Vatican Council is the loss of what one of them called the ontology of the church and the mentalities of the people. In the ontology of the church, there was the being of the church and you grew into it and acquired it and made commitment in the light of it. Today, uh, young Catholics are not that way at all. In fact, an interesting footnote in history, I'm always hoping this, I'll be remembered somehow. I gave the Pope the phrase, pick and choose Catholicism. Uh, it happened in Newsweek and a speechwriter picked it up uh, he didn't give me credit. I didn't get any royalties or anything. But, um, but I think the phrase does it. When the ontology of the church disappears, and that is massive in our society, religion becomes a matter simply of choice. Peter Berger wrote a book called The Heretical Imperative, reminding us that the Greek word hieresis means to choose. Now, this is the precarious ledge, ridge on which the Baptist communions were born because they took the risk on decision. Billy Graham's magazine called decision. So you're flirting with this idea all the while, but in a culture where there's a transmission by numbers of people, you're picking and choosing within a certain family. You affirm the covenant. I remember in uh, Review of Religious Research, I think September 19... 60, way back in history at least, toward the Middle Ages, there was an article on which denomination had the largest number of dropouts among young adolescents. And it was the Southern Baptist Convention. I thought, how in the world could that be? They, 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 they got them. Well, according to these studies, it began with rebellion against mom and dad. But by then, they had gotten the story. They had gotten the culture. A few years later, they're off to summer camp and they have evangelists there and they have Bible teachers there and they reaffirm, they grow into it. So I'm saying there's an implicit 
ontology of the church that's there before you make a personal commitment. It's not mere pick and choose. But somehow that gets lost, and I read many debates among you <laughs> who are Baptists as to whether uh, soul competence, soul liberty, or autonomy will cover what that means. Because it always had meant that whatever soul liberty meant or means, whatever autonomous means, it's always in the context of a community of which you are a part and which you are affirming along the way. It's yours, but you didn't invent it. I've uh, heard some people in the Baptist tradition who say all you do is the Bible and that, that'll solve everything. My teacher, Sidney Mead, tells of somebody in the hills of Tennessee who had nothing but a dictionary and a Bible and somehow taught himself to read and it said in the Bible that you should go down and preach. So he went down and preached. He'd get run out of town as a Unitarian. Well, every denomination tells the story that way, as if it's lying there waiting for you to pick it up and, uh, and, and you'd find it there. No, there is a, uh, there's a prehistory that goes to the way we read it. I don't know. Maybe there are people who've been converted by a Gideon Bible. I'm glad they're there. I often panic if I forget my little thing and I have another text to look up, and there it is back in old King James waiting for me. But uh, uh, I, I don't know if you can, can convert it. We tell a story of a, there's a bookmark inside the Gideon Bibles or it's paste inside the cover. It's right next to the Book of Mormon in the Marriott Hotels, the King James Version. And it says, I'll make up the text, if you are downhearted, read Psalm 12, 14. If you are uh, far from home, read uh, Judges 12, 19. If you are tempted, read uh, Psalm so-and-so. And go down that whole list, and at the bottom it says, and if you're still lonely, call Lola, 342-4698. <laughs> because there's a personalization of the word, and that's how it happens that people take the Bible. There is a community that has cared enough to preserve it, translate it, propagate it, teach it, and so on. So decisions are made in that context, but in a time when individualized spirituality and the marketing religion is so prominent, it's very easy for Baptists to forget their greatest gift in that place. It was in this context that I wrote the article referred to earlier about Baptistification. My interest there wasn't in the Baptist denomination, but the fact that the one side of what it is to be Baptist was born with modernity, maybe the Baptists and the uh, Mennonites and the Quakers helped invent it uh, because it's a, quite a departure from medieval Catholicism and Calvinist and Lutheran and Anglican Protestantism, but it was still done in that context. Number four, where we are and whither we are tending on another one of the main historical features of the Baptist, local church polity and its associations. Almost anyone who reads about church polity notes some of the main same phenomenon. Whether the polity is hierarchical, Episcopal, Presbyterian, Congregational, Connectional, or whatever, these are years in which the practice of the local is winning out. Paradoxically, in a world in which we are more interconnected than ever, it makes no sense to talk about Christianity in the world today without talking about global Christianity. The church is moving south and we're getting more signals from it. And yet, in the practical life of most people, the local just wins out in those terms. You can see this in the financial reports of, let's say, hierarchical denominations. 
but they, they, they match in the others. So let's say the Episcopal Church. There's the general convention, and then there's the diocese, and then there's the local church. And as you see in hard times, you can see it in all the graphs of all the bodies, headquarters is getting less every year, and the middle range thing less, and the local. Why? Well, for one thing, it remains trusted. It's closer. You take part in it along the way. This is a time for a great deal of suspicion and resentment of the remote and the bureaucratic and so on. Now, Baptists should be well poised for that because of their local feature. At the same time, we learn of all the things that can better be done through association, consociation, etc. Somebody says the internet revolution that uh, distance has disappeared. And in a way, that's true. I can as readily talk to my co-authors in South Africa as I can in South Chicago, maybe more pleasantly. And in the back of our minds, we know that's to be a part. And I think the way the churches are organizing and generally keeping trust in the attempt to deal with the tragedy in Haiti. If you're following it at all, you see that all the newspapers and all the internets have to say, careful, 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 because there are a lot of uh, exploitations of it. There's spamming going on, all kinds of things that um, may take you away. But if you're working through these approved things, you can do it. Now, a lot of local churches do wonderful things in their locale, or they will adopt a mission somewhere. These are wonderful, and there's no reason to talk against it. But to make sense in the longer world today, we have to constantly keep asking in what way the local relates. And I think if the Baptist story continues, that will be as alive then as it is now. Number five, you can't duck this one, and you sure better not duck it at Baylor, church and state under whatever terms you're going to use. It's been that way, of course, as long as there have been religions faith communities, the Christian church, but the people who have made this most vivid to us in the modern world, in the free world, and then by export elsewhere, are people in the Baptist traditions or the Baptist-like traditions. In part because they were dissenters and they had to find ways to relate. Some of them did it very radically. We heard from interim president, I say president, Garland, that uh, we have Lutheran, they have Calvin, you don't have anybody. Well, you got a lot of near misses. Uh, <laughs> we really like Roger Williams, John Clark, people Don Smith, we really like them, they all contributed, but there may have not been a particular one, but they were born with a certain view, and at Salem, Roger Williams pulls the flag down, cuts out the cross, because how could Christ's cross be associated with a human venture in all of its ambiguity? Today, among the churches and the bodies that are most wavering in that are many of the denominations that are Baptist. When I spoke a little while ago about how the local is independent, it's also reached by the outside, but it's reached by Fox News, 
by your favorite commentator on whatever side. Our church body has gone through the throes of deciding about um, gay ordination, and almost every pastor who's been trying to reason out biblically says, my members have already been reached by, by Limbaugh, by Dobson, by whatever, and it's very hard to start from scratch because you're getting that along the way. I think that's what's been happening in the understanding of how we relate to the state. The sense that the crisis, the moral crisis, and it's real, the security crisis, and it's real, the pluralist crisis is real, are so far gone that for the first time, a lot of Baptists are saying, we gotta call in the state to do part of our work. We need a school prayer amendment. We've gotta have our high school football teams in Texas start with a joint prayer for everybody that's there because otherwise they won't win or they'll be less moral or whatever. I think voluntary prayer is wonderful. I think the teaching of religion and about religion in the schools is wonderful. But whenever it's said that we can't make it without the endorsement of the state, I picture Roger Williams there snipping away at that along the way. There's always a borderline, and I'm not trying to make it simple. I, I doubt whether I'd even be listed as an absolute separationist because as a historian, I don't think we've ever had it. The tax exemption of the churches, however we want to justify it, probably, Peter Berger says, is a bigger boon to American churches than establishment state support is to the European, where you hope you get enough money to repair the church windows or pay the pastor or something like that. Whereas the tax exemption of this institution and the churches is a huge thing. I was a pastor in the suburbs of Chicago in a town of 10,000. That uh, upper middle class had no downtown. We were next to Oak Park, which had one. We had no industry. We were next to Melrose Park that had them. It's all houses except for Rosary College, Concordia College, and 11 churches on choice property. If you're an atheist in that town, you're paying for that very much along the way. A few years ago when Charitable Choice came in, I got involved in studying it. And again, when I see these are difficult issues, they are difficult issues. I was on a commission of, there were six Jews and six Christians, six Protestants actually, real Christians. And uh, two were evangelical, two were Baptist, two were mainline or whatever. And of course, uh, the one, one thing I learned with the African-American churches, um, the little ones, were not much for charitable choice, and the big ones were, because the big ones could afford all the machinery it takes to work with Washington or capital to get the funds to do these, and it extends their ministries greatly, whereas the little ones can't do that, and they see something ebbing along the way. Well, among our studies to show, well, one, one would always say, if you take the king's shekels, you get the king's shackles, which I think is a very Baptist thing to say, and the others would say, oh, but look at how we can extend our ministry. Well, we studied, and I think in Mississippi, the most effective program for keeping kids off drugs was run by an African-American Baptist pastor. His records are really great. Almost nobody was achieving anything, and he could do it. And he is to get funds for this. And somebody down there says, yeah, he's getting funds for this, but he says, I can't achieve anything if I can't get him under the water and coming up for Jesus. He said, I'm a Jew, should I be paying for that? These are conscientious issues that are not really soluble. And they won't be solved 400 years from now because the Supreme Court, even some of the present judges will be off dead by then. Uh, 
But every time there's a new appointment, you know that these issues will be the most tense, aren't they? Those relating to how Christ's people relate to the civil order positively and critically. It'll be debated and, I hope, discussed. Number six, peoplehood. Where we are and whither we are tending. I'm glad that there are people from around the uh, world in this gathering and that there have been so many worldwide themes of this sort. The degree to which Baptists also are separated not only between whether you're Calvinist or Arminian or whatever, but uh, social class in ways that uh, are very hard to penetrate. Some largely white Baptist groups do better than most at reaching beyond their historical boundaries, but we all have a long way to go. I'm particularly interested in the autochthonic, <laughs> the uh, black Baptist churches that grew up on their own soil along the way, and uh, what they learned negatively from the whites and how difficult both are to do their blending. It's time of great change along the way, and many places the Latino, Latina, Hispanic presence is casting another dimension to it. But I think we have a long way to go, whither we are tending. In that, I would throw in one other thing that I will back off from in a hurry. The more I've read of Baptist history, I think the most unresolved peoplehood issue in most of the Baptist churches, not all of them, is the understanding of the role of women. Because 51 to 55% of the Baptists anywhere are women, and they are involved and competent and so on, and yet they get certain messages that tell them biblical understandings of submission has to carry over into the world they're now living. As of this year, more women around the world are employed than men. They are the breadwinners. And all of these changes that are occurring, very different in every polity, means that that part of peoplehood has to be thought of too. Number seven, witness to Jesus and the relation to world religions. We have experts tomorrow on the mission of the Baptist Church, which uh, really was, uh, has a patent on a lot of it. It's interesting to me, I wrote a biography of Luther a few years ago, and I thought, well, you know, he's 1492, he lived to be 1546, what did he say about America? Uh, I think he knew there was a new world, but he was interested in converting Saxony. It didn't go much beyond that. And in the 18th century, the uh, first writings on this found that most Calvinists, most Lutherans, most Anglicans had no concept at all. It was with Carey and others in the 1790s, and then copycat, London Missionary Society, and all the rest of it catch on. But the sense that you could generate a new understanding, whether on millennial grounds or on others. And I think that's a continuing gift and much discussed and I hope conversed about. But I think the new factor that the Baptists will be discussing in the next 400 years is how the particular reference to faith in Jesus relates to the larger world, including the larger religious world. Baptists can't uh, settle for simple exclusivism. We're the only boat. But they also can't settle for we're only in different boats heading for the same shore. If you just look at what all these boats are, they're not the same boats along the way. How we relate, and I hope we'll hear some of that tomorrow night because the Baptists have so much at stake in that. Many of the church-state issues in America today come out this way. Brit Hume, theologian Brit Hume last week had it all figured out and got everybody in a lot of trouble by his understanding. And uh, 
that you can't say Jesus Christ without being uh, persecuted. Well, it's how you say it, where you say it, when you say it, and so on. It is more complex in a pluralist world than when there's just a biggie and a dissenter. James Madison always liked to quote Voltaire. Uh, in England, if it were only one religion, established church, it would do what one religion nations always do. It would kill all the others. If it had two religions, it would do what two religion nations always do. They kill each other, Northern Ireland and so on. Uh, because it has 30, they have to find ways of getting along. And I think we have to celebrate the wonderful ways in which pluralism has worked in the United States. But as it's gotten close to home, we have a whole new set of questions. If I just did a roll call of my own family, the 30 most immediate, and gave you the list of the nations involved there, the uh, I have a great great-granddaughter who is married to a Haitian, um, served a term in the army in Iraq, was sent to Afghanistan, came home to greet his several-week-old baby. I have a picture of the two of them. And the next day, PTSD, he committed suicide. We discussed that at the family table where people are from all the other realms. My newest great-granddaughter-in-law, I mean granddaughter-in-law, produced her <laughs> my next great-grandchildren. I asked, who are you and what are you? Well, I guess you'd call me a Trinidadian, Caribbean, Mexican, Texan, Minnesotan. And along the way, picks up a little bit of everything but voodoo along the way. Um, I think that that is going to remain a very serious issue, will demand the best understanding of mission-minded evangelistic people. Number eight, sex. I should have quit while I'm ahead, but I do have to mention it because if you simply compute what all denominations are fighting about today, it is about, in the longest term, the biological theme. Stem cell research, in vitro fertilization, abortion, contraception, carrying all the way through um, is, is the big fight in every denomination. Some talk about it in public, some in private. They're all mad at each other along the way. I'll play long-term church historian today, and I have to say my little theory is it takes the Christian church about 200 years to settle something. 325, they got so pooped by fighting over the Trinity that they said, okay, we agree, here's the creed. And in 451, they tired of fighting over the two natures of Christ, and we agree with Chalcedon. And then they fight for two centuries about Pelagianism, and we finally agree, yep, people really are sinners. And then they fight uh, about the Pope versus the Council, and the Protestant Reformation, and so on. And lucky you and we were born in the half century behind us now of having to talk about sex because of the technological changes, the pill, the laboratories, and the um, political changes, the democratic ethos of everybody doing what they want to do along the way, and poor people on the spot that have to keep thinking it through right away and coming up with a final solution. I always pondered in my own denominations fight why the biblical injunctions against divorce about which Jesus talked and Paul talked more clearly and strenuously in the New Testament don't even get talked about. Homosexuality, which in my little tiny Bible takes six inches, uh, has us all tied up in knots. W.C. Fields once said, I've been reading the Bible for a long time looking for a loophole. And uh, 
there's a lot of that going on. That, by the way, I should say the W.C. Fields, the comic, because you Southern Baptists had a W.C. Fields who was a great editor. Anybody remember that, that name? Good. The good old days. Um, what to do and how to do it? Well, there's no way to solve this along the way, but I do think that uh, the levels of conversation will, will be improved. I'm a Nebraskan and kind of discouraged because a senator that I know and a former governor that I know and I respect, Ben Nelson, is um, fighting the many of the battles uh, against uh, a health care program that I think would be a very fine program. Um, I don't think it's where he comes from, but it's constantly, I think he is on abortion, I think it is, he has a real understanding of that. But on many of the other issues, drive across Nebraska and you won't hear anything on the radio except the constant drumbeat of one message of this sort. And I think that the more the churches will get back to discussing what their own biblical scholars and so on are teaching, we'll get a little better off. Finally, where are we and whether we are tending on matters of conflict? Um, Baptists are born as dissenters and you heard <laughs> your Abrahamic lineage. Um, born in conflict and you can't not produce conflict and therefore you have to render it creative and understand it. Bronislav Malinowski says, aggression like charity begins at home. You don't usually wake up in the morning wondering how you can fight the Unitarians or something. They're out there, but that's not what it is. It's because you are very close and the stakes are high and you're webbed together and so on uh, that that's there. But in a media world, that's the only thing most people learn about. I attended our own denominational convention three, four years ago. I had a committee report. And it was interesting that uh, they were discussing whether to discuss homosexuality and ordination of homosexuals. And it was, we predicted it. I can't go 400 years, but I sure could go four days. Not a camera in sight, not a reporter in sight, nobody in sight until Tuesday morning at 10 o'clock when this came up. And they all came in and they got their shot. Minutes over, they're gone. And all the world knows about is that that's what they're doing. Here we have these wonderful charities. We have these wonderful things going on in congregations. We sing the praises of God. We educate children. You'd never know that because it's a preoccupying kind of thing. And I think the more we can render the conflict into that best part of the tradition, it's so refreshing for people actually to argue about the two natures of Christ or Calvinism versus Arminianism. I mean, that's our stuff. Uh, there, there are real live issues there that I'd like to see talked about, and uh, and the press won't care about them. We can really carry them on very publicly, and it's like being in secret. Well, I hope that that uh, I hope lighthearted approach to uh, the conflict that will be there. We have to know it was there from the beginning. Christopher Stendhal, a great Harvard Divinity Dean and Lutheran biblical scholar, once <laughs> spoke to 400 Lutheran pastors and said. You know, we think we got the patent on, on justification by faith. You know, that's our brand. Uh, where'd you get it? Well, Augustine, we got really got it from Paul. That's what he's all about. Stendhal says, yeah, um, read Paul's letters. Every one of them has the same plot. They're all written to people already justified by grace through faith. They've all got that. They just can't live with each other. And every letter is how can the people at Corinth or whatever get along with each other along the way because important issues are at stake. And if you can find a way in which they generate them, 
And I think if you look at Baptist history, it's enlivened by when they take on tough issues and it's blessed when they find ways to keep the conversation going and doing the works of God. What we might do and how to do it, there are plenty of biblical texts to find direction. So I can say happy anniversary, happy your next 400, uh, 399 years. Thank you. I was just around the world last month on a jet tour of four alumni associations, and uh, my family gave me a cane so I could do Machu Picchu and Dalai Lama's palace. And, and one of the 88 people, along with the podiatrist, who said, Marty, you drag your feet. I'm going to teach you a new way of walking. You've got to have rockers. See these shoes? Free commercial. Rocker shoes. There you go. Okay. So you're never stable, and it's fun. It's good for your calves, and it'll cure you all along the way. I want, to, I, I want to walk down with you. Yeah. I'll stay up here too. I'll, I'll keep selling shoes. Okay. Yes. Dr. Marty has consented to answer a few questions. We, um, my colleagues, Dr. Rosalie Beck and Dr. Barry Hankins, have microphones on either aisle. If you have a question that you would like to pose to uh, uh, Dr. Marty, raise your hand, and my colleagues will come to you uh, for the purpose of being fair to as many people as possible, please try to keep your question as, as short as possible. I hope there are questions. That's what I like best. And uh, I was so into rocking, I almost forgot about that. Stand there. Please. Hi, Dr. Marty. Thank you so much for your lecture. I really appreciate it. Um, my name is Samuel Pomeroy. I'm a sophomore here at Baylor. And I, I'm from Seattle, Washington. Uh, and uh, Texas is a very different different world, different place, uh, and I, I love it in a lot of ways. And one thing I was uh, in instantly kind of fascinated with, I must confess, is, is the uh, the amount of mega churches down here. There are, there are not a lot of uh, you know not, not a lot of churches with huge populations and huge stadiums and ornate places with rock bands playing. And um, I think I think they have their places and their problems, just like any other church does. Uh, to be fair, but um, one one thing that that kept coming into my mind was the nature of the teaching. In a lot of in a lot of churches, and I I hate to point fingers, and there's absolutely no church out there there that's perfect. But something that's always on my mind is the way that a church teaches, and what a pastor preaches about, what he preaches over, how he does things, what he preaches for. Um, and so I was one. And you, you talked a lot about the ontology of a church and uh, a body of people coming into being of what the church means. Um, and how do you think the um, teaching uh, is going to change and uh, in that way, and how do you think that fits into the ontology of the church? It's a wonderful question, and a very fateful one, because a lot of that is going on. Um, first thing I would say is that uh, megachurch is not a single phenomenon. It's a highly complex phenomenon, and uh, uh, the spectrum is very broad, but there's enough in common with enough of them that the question demands a kind of a comment. Um, I think the best way to see teaching in the megachurches is not Sunday. See what happens on a Wednesday night or whatever. I know many people, to me, the megachurch usually looks more like an audience than a congregation. It's packaged, it's PowerPointed, and so on. We historians have a little phrase, power corrupts and PowerPoint corrupts absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 
it's all kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's packaged, it's preformed. There are no, I have a, 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 my best friend's nephew, Paul Clark, was one of the great pioneers in Christian rock and so on. And one Christmas he came and he said, I, he was at Willow Creek and he said, oh man, I had to stay two extra hours because our intro music was eight seconds too long. Ooh. You know, everything is programmed along the way. Well, you know why it is and it, it has to be if you're trying something that big. And good things happen along the way. But I think that um, much more of it is prepackaged. I think its greatest danger is it becomes a market approach to religion. You assess what certain hungers or needs are and then you address it directly without asking is this part of the whole counsels of God. Uh, where they shame others though is that they get a great number of people to participate on some level or other. There are an awful lot of Christian churches where there's almost no adult education and um, fewer children around to bring it up in the, in the future along the way. But I think it's much more prepackaged, uh, much more, I won't say authoritarian, but it's uh, authoritative and not so much the inquiring. I love it when I'm in a, in Aspen, I like to hang out with the people that run, run Aspen when all the rich people go home for mid-season. And these are the druggists and so on. And about 40 of them, they meet guys. And uh, they cook their own pancakes and so on. And they simply take a chapter at a time. And you hear the most wild hermeneutics. Because they go verse by verse and they do it. And yet something happens that the Spirit's moving there. They're taking the Bible seriously. They really want to make it work along the way. I think you lose that very much in the prepackaged character of the mega. And there aren't many in Seattle, you're right. Anybody else? There's a hand right here. Yeah, he's coming with it. She's, she's coming with the microphone. Thank you for your talk very much, Professor Marty. It's always good to have you on our campus. Uh, talk a little bit about the future of denominational support of various sorts of institutions outside the official church, such as hospitals and orphanages and universities. So, uh, how do you how do you see that playing out? The future of higher education. That that's yeah. one possibility. Right. Well, we had a good conference on that here a few years ago on the, on the Baptist thing, but you're enlarging it now across the, across the board. I'm, uh, my next big speech, <laughs> I can only, one consumes me is gonna be at LECNA, Lutheran Education something or other. And what's really humorous is they're down in Florida, which I don't like. I like to go back to Chicago, it's cold, but it's fun. And, uh, you, but they said, you get to stay two extra days because you are a former president. I was president for nine months, and I hear all the valiant people that are really putting in their terms. But I, they won't they want talk about that kind of thing, and I'm really busy on that, and I think a lot about it. I spend a lot of time on it. Um, the one extreme that prospers on one set of terms, I think, is not gonna become normative, and that's the extremely sheltered form in the Baptist, uh, same kind of thing. The University of Chicago is a way extreme the other way, founded by modernists, and they didn't spend a minute on, in fact, I, in preparing for this, I have a little folder called Baptist, and one of the, I saw a letter there about three years ago, when I serve on the committee of the uh, University of Chicago to discuss its, it, it, its, 
father's role with the 400th anniversary as a Baptist institution. And I, I must have never met because I never got a follow-up letter. I said, yes, so there they go. That's the, so let's, let's put those two extremes away and say the model. And I think there, the uh, many things I talked about here tonight, I think um, uh, higher education, uh, you have to have a starting base. I'll, I'll put it this way. I spoke for the centennial of uh, Agnes Scott College a few years ago, which was a wonderful women's college. They had 47 women presidents of women's colleges. And uh, my theme there was higher education, every institution has to be descript. We have the word nondescript. And nondescript means neither here nor there. Descript means you give some reference point. Um, I know a, a Jew who was a provost at a Catholic college who said, I go there because there's a reference point. I know what it is. They're not cramping me. They, they, they chose me. And yet, you, you do a lot better. Uh, interesting to me at uh, St. Olaf, the one I know most about and care most about, the head of the religious studies is as a Hindu and a professor of Hindu studies, my granddaughter went there and said, he's the best Lutheran on the faculty because he is out to discern what is the genius of the place. It's, it's student body is 46% Lutheran, so it's, a, it's one of the schools where there's a big retention of that. But I can go, I've spoken at every church of the Brethren College, I think there's six of them, Juniad, Elizabethtown, Bridgewater, Laverne, et cetera, with the exception of Laverne in California. Um, in five minutes, I know it's Church of the Brethren. And at none of them is more than 15% of the student body Church of the Brethren. It's a custodianship of people who know what it's about. They restore a Brethren meeting house from the 19th century and make that the, the commons there. Every kid learns the story. They come to appreciate it whether they become it or not. And I think that's true. The, the Catholics, right after Vatican II, many of them chose to dump it all. And they're not around anymore. Webster was a wonderful sister of Loretto College in suburban St. Louis. It's a fine university, but there isn't a trace of the lineage there. So I think you need a custodianship, and they don't all have to be of that church body. Uh, what, what we always do in a couple of institutions I'm with, we would always say, uh, you don't have to be a believer in the mission, but you have to be a friend of the mission. And very often you'll get uh, church-related college, university, or so, where a lot of faculty want to be more secular than thou, kind of as if, as if you're carrying a burden because there's a tradition instead of something you're enjoying and using. That doesn't get you anywhere. This is, you're never going to be as good at the secular as the secular is. <laughs> so you always be pretending and think, oh, that's, that's really interesting. You can remember that they were once Methodist. It's, it's a lot more fun when they wrestle with what that tradition is. Um, the increasing pluralism in American life will make it always more difficult to do that but I think attentiveness to it can do it. When I say pluralism, again, I, there's no place to hide. The, uh, uh, the book about Lincoln, Nebraska, uh, a wonderful feminist author was moved there because her husband was jobbing. You're gonna go with your husband? You're gonna be in Lincoln, Nebraska? Uh, you'll be in the middle of nowhere. Her next book was called The Middle of Everywhere. 90 languages are spoken in the parents of the public schools. So up and down the block, you have, uh, thanks to the 1965 legislation, you have La Laotians, you have Hmong, you have uh, Africans straight from Africa that you didn't have. And all that will be bewildering, but I've noticed many schools that I get to, if they're attentive to it, uh, 
people who never become part of the tradition above the, of the church body profit from the tradition. I think Notre Dame felt it gave too much away and it's finding ways to keep articulating it. It's never going to be the old Irish Catholic place that it was. And you have agitators who wish it were. It isn't going to be that. But when you're there, you can see what a premium, what, where, where premiums are placed. And I think that's important. Roger Olson, and something you and I have in common is that we're both students of denominations, and I love to study denominations. It's sort of my hobby. And I really would like to suggest that there are three Baptist denominations in the United States. I mean, there are 57, but there are three. In most northern cities, uh, the Northeast, the Upper Midwest, the West, and the Northwest, this isn't quite as true in the South, but I think there's an analogy you have three kinds of Baptists, and they don't talk to each other. Uh, there's the liberal Baptists, usually American Baptist churches, my denomination. There's the evangelical Baptists, and there are the fundamentalist Baptists. And each has their own culture, and they intersect with each other and network with each other and have nothing to do with the others. Uh, in the evangelical group, you'll find the Swedish Baptists and the German Baptists and the conservative Baptists and all of those which are genericized, they're all the same now. They worship the same, they believe the same. Then you have the American Baptists, and then you have the various fundamentalist Baptist groups. Does that sound true to you, and what does it mean for the future, if so? Well, I, it, it rings true, yes, indeed, and it shows how hard motion is going to be. Um, I wouldn't give up, and I also wouldn't jump off a cliff that I didn't solve it in my lifetime. Um, whenever I was, when I was making these studies of fundamentalism project, uh, I worked very closely with an awful lot of fundamentalists along the way, and uh, we found we just, no matter how courteous we were to each other, we couldn't jump past a certain point. Um, I consoled myself with from St. Benedict, the Benedictines, whose motto was, let all guests be received as Christ. And uh, they had envisioned what happens if a guest comes who's really tough. Yeah, the word is contumacious, argumentative, and obstructive of the fellowship. Knocks on the door, you've got to take him in. He's a fugitive monk, he's a drunk, a paranoid schizophrenic, a womanizer, and there he comes. What are you going to do? Um, well, uh, Benedictines, uh, our other motto is ora et labora. You uh, pray with him. That should move his heart, and he'll see why we're right. If that doesn't work, you take them out the cow shed and clean out the manure, and that's a bonding act too. And it doesn't move him. And so you, God gave us reason, you use reason, and you use reason along the way. And uh, it goes through the cyclist about twice, and, uh, and then if you haven't succeeded at the end, if he remains contumacious, argumentative, obstructive at the table, get two stout monks to take him out and explain the matter to him. <laughs> Which I use as my reminder, not of a strategy, but of the fact that even that most benign, soft kind of thing, you aren't going to win them all. So no, you're not going to win all this. There, there are many kinds of motion. I see a lot of the middle group you're talking about. Um, numbers of them do their doctorates in Chicago, and I get to know them. Um, they're kin, um, Swedish Baptists, and so on. Um, Many of them were pulled off into the raw fundamentalism. There are many kinds of Southern Baptists that are in that almost middle group that you're talking about. Um, firm but open. Um, I think that the radically liberal type 
will find that uh, some of their members, including their kids, who often look for more structure along the way, will disappear. Uh, it's not a young people's movement uh, when I go to the big, what were big Baptist churches of the North. Um, I wouldn't give up, though. I think none of them are really talking about the heart of what they've been about. The fundamentalist program in the Baptist church today is fundamentalist more than is Baptist. And on many of the issues, once upon, <laughs> dare I admit it, before there was Oprah Winfrey, there was Phil Donahue. And I was on a program with him one time when uh, President Reagan announced that 1983 was gonna be the year of the Bible. And so Donahue sends a big maroon limo to the campus to take me down there. And uh, uh, a gay New York atheist was there. And the head of the NAE was there. And um, ACLU man was there. And Donahue took for granted that he's just gonna rip everything apart, religious apart. And what do you do when you're not this? I'm a Southern Baptist pastor. But absolutely through this audience of 300 women and how many millions they have out there, because they have an image of what you have to be to fill that role. But there's just a lot of ways to be Baptist within one of these traditions. And the more you can get the conversation going from within, I think the better off we are. If only we didn't have to vote in conventions. But when you're solidified in it, there's a real, um, it's almost your world falls apart. Uh, you get a lot of dropouts from the strict group and you get a lot of drifters away from the other group. But um, I'd like to see the conversation continue. A couple more? Yes. Hi, Dr. Marty. Um, last several decades, the Pentecostal charismatic traditions have influenced Baptists and other groups. And I was just wondering if you talk a little bit about how you think this Pentecostalizing influence will continue to impact Baptists or maybe other groups uh, like your own. Okay. Um, I think this came to prominence through Pat Robertson some years ago because all the Baptists were saying Charismatics were horrible and all the Charismatics were saying Baptists were horrible and here you had a nationally known figure who was sort of both and uh, it started showing up around the way. And then there was a time when a lot of Catholics and mainline Protestants had strong charismatic movements in them. Um, most of them didn't survive much. They brought a positive contribution. They greatly enlarged the language of devotion. And the Holy Spirit is a rather neglected experience for most Christians and to bring that vividly there. Uh, I think they made contribution to understanding of healing. A lot of these good things. But um, they found it hard to sustain themselves uh, as the, the kin under the roof. Pope Paul VI was really smart. They came to Rome in great numbers, I think hoping to be condemned, and he embraced them. And that was a problem, because if he condemned them, then they could recruit every Catholic who was of that instinct or wrong way. But he just sort of, you all come. I was at meetings at Notre Dame in the mid-60s into the mid-70s, in summer when 55,000 Catholic Pentecostals and Charismatics were there. Um, it's a limping movement today along the way. Uh, on the problem, the area I know least about, and maybe we'll hear more tomorrow night, uh, I think the real drama is gonna be in uh, what we used to call the poor world, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, Southeast Asia, uh, and such places where uh, baptistification goes on but the overwhelming force is charismatic. And uh, the part that's going to play, uh, we'll have to see. 
if it means a revitalization of piety, uh, a witness to the Holy Spirit, fine. And therefore, wherever you can, you keep the embrace. I'm not informed enough to know of any Baptist body that's so far into it that it becomes the prime language. It's more an influence that I can see, usually through mass media and some renewal movements. I wish I could give more information, but Brahma's going to be watching Africa. One more? Maybe we'll make this the last one. I could go on all night, but I shouldn't, so let's make this it. Hi, Dr. Marty. Thank you for being here tonight. Um, a lot has been said that, uh, that young people, maybe folks under the age of 30, have really no interest in denominationalism anymore. What do you see um, in, in, in those trends, and how might we address that? I mean, we're, we're here on a college campus, and there are a lot of students here, but, but there could be more. So I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that. Well, you put your finger on the biggest single problem I'm dealing about with 404 years. Um, I think many of the Baptist groups, including the Southern, have done better than most at retaining an awful lot of the young. Uh, that's almost proverbial, and evangelicalism has done better. Catholicism just plain lost two generations. Mainline Protestants mainly lost the better part of two generations. And um, what to do, I don't know. I've put all the energy you can into it, but it, among the explanations, I think, would be, number one, um, we coasted. Um, until the Second World War, if your parents were Methodists, you'd be Methodists. Just take it for granted. You're nurtured in it. You live near them. Uh, grandchildren and grandpa and grandma go to church together. I think if you went around your family stories and you have seniors around, you'd find a lot of that transmission. Uh, World War II, um, before World War II, 4%, I think, of American Catholic young people were in non-Catholic colleges. By the 1970s, uh, Catholic was the, by far the largest, best educated group in America, thanks to the GI Bill. It was an enormous thing. Suddenly you're meeting every other kind, and you're not marrying another Catholic, and you're not near mom and dad, and you move a lot. And um, they hadn't gotten a story. And I think that's the biggest single problem now with the decline in Sunday schools. Fewer marriages, fewer children. Uh, my neighbor colleague, Andrew Greeley, says the biggest thing in Catholic and Mainline Protestants, demographic. Smaller families, later families, um, great mobility along the way, and haven't figured out ways to uh, change that. So I think that's the first thing, demographic. The other is the lifestyle change, which is uh, in, in no small measure mediated by every technological device, radio, movies, television, but now internet and blog, is a kind of erosion of every kind of pattern where you step back to find out what, what things are about. Um, there's a church in Chicago that I've followed a lot. It's an evangelical church called LaSalle Street. Maybe some of you have heard of it. Pastor Leslie was there, and he was describing how it worked there. Um, first of all, none of the kids know the story. You can't make literary allusions to, uh, I suppose Noah's Ark would maybe do it, and Jonah and the whale would do it, but beyond that, you're you're pretty stuck. Where would they get it? They wouldn't get it in public school. They won't get it in today's Sunday school. So they don't know the story, and so you can't build upon a latent story. So I think the more we can do on that front is going to be important. But um, one of the most important things about young people is <laughs> they do what the people they hang out with do. So anywhere where there's a gathering of 8, 10, 12 on a campus or something like that, that grows, and people take 
begin to take it seriously. Uh, Catholicism, uh, the priest shortage is there, a rebellion against some of the Catholic teachings, particularly contraception. They don't even worry about it anymore. Most of the young and most of these church bodies wonder why their adults are fighting over homosexuality. It doesn't even come up. Uh, it's just massively so. So not that you have to tailor all your teaching to it, but you have to at least make clear why issues that matter matter. Uh, more power to anybody that makes anything work. Um, I like to study who, who goes to seminaries, and they tend to be on the, um, the, the seminaries I know. The main grounds are either a pastor who influenced them a great deal, campus religion, chaplains, and so on, or summer camp. Uh, somehow or other, there has to be some sustenance that goes beyond just 11 o'clock Sunday morning or other. It's a big part of it. And of course, uh, workforce. When a Baptist group sends people to Haiti, <laughs> can't do that right now, uh, when you can again, uh, they come back and they're much more serious because they see you really do need community to achieve any kind of thing. Um, this gaseous spirituality that I was probably too critical of um, ends with, in a certain sense, it's about as interesting culturally as to say, I like Scarlatti and you like rock. Um, it's, it's aesthetic along the way. And, but when you start getting together, then you say, you know, come on, Marty, you, you lift your part of it, or how do you face evil or something like that? I live in a high-rise, um, John Hancock Center. I live in the 85th floor. We have never met our neighbor on either side, and we're about as gregarious as anybody could be. Uh, we have a little web now of people along the way, but you don't meet each other along the way. And then, now and then, Mr. Hirsch down the hall knew somebody who knew somebody who knew I was a minister. And uh, would I come and uh, have a prayer with his wife? And well, pretty soon I got them revivified with a rabbi along the way. But none of them envisions what it's like when you really need <laughs> company. Uh, I have a friend in medical anthropology who said, pain is awful, suffering is awful. If you've got terminal illness, aloneness is worse. And when you're 21 and 22, you're not picturing that that's something that is best conveyed through a long term. So putting a premium on is the very first thing. And there are movements. Princeton, some of you have talked to some Princeton Seminary, they have a, a department of this now. I think Southern Baptists have done a lot in this line, some of it hard line, some of it in this kind of open camping experience. Um, but um, we took it for granted. You can't take anything for granted anymore. I think that was the main thing in mainline churches in general. You, took, you, were, you were chaplains to the establishment. If you look at Newsweek magazine in the 1930s, every time there's a new Episcopal bishop, uh, he's featured uh, in Newsweek. Today, I think what you have to do to, be, to make Newsweek magazine, if you're an Episcopal bishop, I'd rather not report. Um, I look forward to tomorrow night when we will hear the world and uh, look forward to relating to it. It's a great honor to be invited to this, and I thank you for that. Yes. Dr. Marty, thank you very much. Uh, let me remind you tomorrow evening at uh, 7 o'clock back here in Waco Hall, uh, we will hear our three uh, Baptist scholars interact with Dr. Marty and what he has said tonight. I was uh, asked to, uh, um, uh, to remind all of you that an exhibit on Baptist history in the uh, Moody Library here at Baylor, the library is closed tomorrow, but the library will be opened at 11 o'clock. Is that correct? 
uh, if you would like to come and see it, it's in the foyer of the library. Thank you very much. Have a good evening.